Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Robert Walensky and Kenneth Walensky discuss their book, The Knox Mine Disaster. Kenneth Walensky, author of The Knox Mine Disaster. Where is the Knox Mine? The Knox Mine was uh, near Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, a bit north uh, of Wilkes-Barre, actually closer to a town called Pittston. the, the actual location of the mine was in Port Griffith, Pennsylvania. Uh, the mine uh, was uh, operated for several years in, in the town of Port Griffith. And the, uh, the slope, this was a slope mine. There are various types of mine. This particular mine was a slope mine, which, mean, which, which means it went into the ground on an angle. Uh, went essentially under the town of, of Port Griffith, uh, extending off into the, the area of Pittston. And the, uh, the part of the mine was called the River Slope, which actually extended very, very close to the Susquehanna River in, in that part of Pennsylvania. The, the, the Susquehanna River uh, in northeastern Pennsylvania is, is a much narrower river than it is where we are here in Harrisburg, where, where it is in some cases, I guess, a mile wide. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the mine extended uh, in, in, underneath part of the, uh, of the Susquehanna River. How did this book come about? Well, it actually began with, with Bob. Um, in, in the late 70s and early 80s, Bob began an oral history project, uh, which we call the Wyoming Valley Oral History Project. And one of the stories, th- th- this, this was a project to essentially interview residents of, of this particular area of Pennsylvania, uh, people from all walks of life, uh, working people, for example. And one of the stories that, uh, that, that kept coming up from, from time to time was the story of the Knox Mine disaster. Bob can tell you a little bit more about, uh, about how that came about. Tell me about the uh, oral history, the Wyoming Valley Oral History Project. Well, um, Ken and I are both natives of that, <clears throat> that valley, uh, which extends um, the, uh, up and down the Susquehanna, uh, north of Wilkes-Barre and south of Wilkes-Barre for about 18 miles. And uh, I had done some earlier research there on the Agnes Flood of 1972, which I know impacted many parts of the state. And um, <clears throat> as part of that oral history, as part of that research, I should say, um, I started interviewing people on tape. And I've heard snippets and bits and pieces about other aspects of local history, not just the Agnes disaster. And mining, as you would expect, kept coming up in these oral history interviews and the Knox disaster as well, because it was one of the most important and infamous events in mining history in this state. And so it grew out of this effort uh, beginning in 70, 1973 uh, when I was at Penn State and um, uh, grew uh, and, and it took off in different directions, the, or the oral history project did, that is, and hence the Knox Mine Disaster book. It says in the book that the oral history project is affiliated with the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point. Why would Stevens Point, Wisconsin, be interested in Wyoming Valley, Pennsylvania? Um, I teach at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, and I have for the last 23 years. 
and I had an, an, op, um, an operation there called the Center for the Study of the Small City. And we do conferences and workshops, and we um, have seminars and um, consult, and we do um, various things which are about small cities all over the country. And in fact, even maybe in parts of, parts of Europe, which we're now exploring some cooperative research with the, with the university in the Ukraine. And um, since I head this up, and since this is one of my main research projects, this institute has helped with um, transcribing oral histories, with proofreading studies, but it's a small part of our overall operation. Yeah, so we, it's we, there because you're there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We have probably about 350 oral history interviews in this collection uh, called the Wyoming Valley Oral History Project. And as I said earlier, it consists of people from various walks of life, uh, working people, public officials, um, teachers, uh, people who were uh, involved in union organizing, uh, people who were involved in, in various walks of life. So it, it's quite a diverse collection. Now you're with the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission. In Harrisburg, that's right. If Pennsylvanians are interested in this oral history collection, is there a copy of it? Is there a way they can look at it through the Historical and Museum Commission? Uh, the, the Historical and Museum Commission doesn't yet have any of the transcripts or the tapes, but we've talked about a cooperative relationship at some point to make these available through the state archives. Uh, if Pennsylvanians are interested, we could probably arrange to, to get them transcripts of, of the oral histories. Well, uh, having to do with the mine disaster, the right. date on the book says January 22, 1959. What happened that day? Well, to put this in, in, in a larger perspective, Brian, let, let's remember that the five-county area of northeastern Pennsylvania, a 500-square-mile area, is where the vast majority of the anthracite or hard coal is located in the Western Hemisphere. So for well over a hundred years, from, from the mid-1850s uh, well up to the, to the 1960s and beyond, coal mining, anthracite coal mining, took place in this part of Pennsylvania. Anthracite is hard coal. It, it burns very cleanly. Uh, bituminous coal, on the other hand, is located in, in the southwestern part of Pennsylvania. So here we're talking about anthracite or hard coal. And mining was very much a part of the culture. It, was, it drove the economy of this area of the state for well over 100 years. Uh, so mining is part of the lore. It, 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 it's part of what people did for a living. So we, we need to have that perspective to understand uh, this disaster. Leading up to January 22, 1959, which is a day uh, in, in the minds of most people from this area of the state, a very significant day because it's a day, that, a day full of drama, a day that changed things dramatically. Um, very quickly, what happened that day was 81 men showed up for work. Uh, about 11.30 that morning, one of the mine workers summoned one of the foremen and told him that he heard the roof props cracking. Roof props were timbers that went from the ceiling to the floor of the mine to hold up the roof. And he heard those timbers begin to crack and to buckle. To a seasoned miner, whenever you hear that, you know that there's danger. There's about to be a cave-in. And what happened at 11.30 that morning was that there was a cave-in, and in this case, the Susquehanna River came into this mine, the Knox Mine, uh, and immediately began to, to flood all of the, the, the workings in that area. Uh, two men were, were killed immediately. Uh, the remainder of that day and for the subsequent days, uh, there was high drama in terms of men trying to get out of the mine before they would drown. They're allowed to mine under the river? Well, um, Yes, you, you are allowed to mine under a river, but under very specific circumstances. Um, mining under a river requires that the mining company drill boreholes 
in the riverbed to determine the thickness of the rock cover. From above or below? From above. Uh, you have ships, you know, little boats out in the, I should say, boats out in the river which are drilling. Coal seams are surrounded by rock. It's like strata of coal, strata of rock, strata of coal, strata of rock. And you must have at least, well, it used to be 50 feet in the old days, but, you know, in the 30s and, and 40s, they reduced it to 35 feet with state approval of rock over a coal seam. As long as you had 35 feet of rock, that was enough to hold up whatever was above it. So there's a lot of mining up in Wilkes-Barre area uh, under the river. But in this particular case, they mined without knowing the appropriate rock cover. The company, the Knox Coal Company, estimated it, uh, the, the rock cover to be about 35 feet um, because nearby boreholes were over 35 feet, although some were much less than 35 feet, as little as 19 inches. But they kind of shot a line between two existing boreholes, one of which read 19 inches, one of which, which read 40-some feet. So they figured, well, if we go in the middle, then the, the rock cover should be something in the 30s. Well, it wasn't. It was probably about seven or eight feet because the, the seam took a little dip there. Uh, the rock in the, in the coal took a unique little dip called an anticline. And so they took a huge chance, which they never should have taken, and that was therefore illegal mining in this case. And yeah. then the, the other complicating factor, of course, is that there was a January thaw. The river was swollen. It, it, it was um, lots of icebergs were floating in the river, and, and, and the river was well above uh, its, its normal flow stage. Uh, so that combined with the fact that there was a very thin cover of rock between the roof of the mine and the base of the river combined to, to bring the Susquehanna River into the coal mine. They have a picture on the cover of the book that shows the uh, water swirling into the mine. And uh, if we can get a shot of that. There it is. Um, you can see there's a railroad track along here. And mm -hmm. this is a pretty big hole in the river. Uh, how much water is flowing in there? The, the U.S. Geological Survey estimated uh, that over the course of, of about three days when the river was, was flowing pretty heavily into this mine, that over 10 billion gallons of water went into the, the Knox mine and, and adjacent workings. Uh, and it was quite a massive whirlpool, as you can, you can see there. If you look closely, you'll see people standing on the railroad track sort of looking in awe at this, this fantastic whirlpool. How far is this from the mine entrance? The mine entrance is at the, at the top of that picture. If you hold it up again, if you can let the audience see it again, at the very top, uh, sort of right, you see a, a rectangular black image. That's the slope's entrance. Not highly visible, and I don't have a pointer or a laser, or else I would, uh, I would point it out for you. But if you follow the, the trajectory of that um, the entrance, the slope entrance, it would lead you down to the foot of the shaft. You want to see the that's, top of this. That's it right there. You're, you are yeah. touching it. Okay. Uh, that, if you follow that traje tra trajectory down, you'll go to the, to the foot of the shaft, to the foot of the slope, excuse me, and then they went out into the, oh, into the river 120-odd feet further than they should have, uh -huh. uh, and the, hence the illegal mining. How fast did the water rise in the mine? Um, fairly quickly. Um, about one-sixth, um, one-fifth um, one of all the river's water flowing by at that point was going into the mine. 
And so I, I couldn't tell you a foot, you know, feet per minute, but within a matter of three days, uh, it was already at the, at, the, at the bottom of the river slope. It had covered the bottom of the, of the entire river slope. How many people were in the mine at the time? 81. 81 on this particular shift. This was the early morning shift. As Ken said, eight, um, uh, at, at, um, at about, eight, uh, about 11.30, 11.40, it broke in and there was a scramble. These 80 men, uh, 81 men scrambled and 12 never made it. How did the people who got out get out? Well, where it broke in at, uh, uh, at the spot that it broke in, there were three men who were watching it break in, who saw it break in, and they just scurried up the slope and saved their lives. And they phoned the foreman, Bob Groves, the superintendent, I should say, very quickly, and he ordered men out of other nearby workings, not telling them that the river had broken in. He just said, get out of the mine now. He feared panic. Groves was a Scotsman, born in Scotland, had a a good Irish, a uh, good, good, good Scottish uh, brogue about him. And uh, um, he uh, said, get out of the mine now. And they said, some of the men didn't, they said, why? And said, just get out of the mine. We don't, we, we're not going to tell you why. Just get out of the mine. Um, 33 got out rather quickly. They went up different exits. They um, walked up, the, uh, ran up the slope, as I say. But most were trapped deep in the mine. And over a period of a total of seven hours. They uh, all were out but 12. Seven got out within two hours. They were with a, a mine inspector who had maps and they went right to this escape. The only escape hatch they had was the Eagle air shaft, an abandoned uh, air shaft. Each mine must have a, an air shaft putting air into the mine, forcing air in. And uh, seven got up very quickly, but there were 26 others with another, in another group that wandered for seven hours before they found the Eagle air shaft or I should say before rescuers found them wandering near the Eagle Air Shaft. So of the 81, all made it out except for 12, and they are still in, their remains are still in the mine. 12 were never recovered. There were some cases in your book where there were <clears throat> miners who had been in the mine and they made it out to the surface and they went back in to try to rescue people? Yeah, um, there, there were cases, there, there was at least one case where, where an individual went back into the mine uh, because he had specific engineering knowledge of, of where uh, of where mines were located and where the men might be located, and he tried to uh, to help them get out. There are, as in you know most dramatic stories like this, several heroes uh, that, that that arose during during the event. Uh, one in particular is a gentleman by the name of Joe Stella. Joe is is still alive. He lives uh, in, in the Pittston area of Pennsylvania. Uh, Joe helped to lead a, a group of men out of the mine after they were wandering through the mine for seven or eight hours and were not sure that they would ever get out. Don't forget, as, as these men are walking through the coal mine, the water level is rising. These men don't know what the nature of the emergency, they don't know what harm is there. They, they just know that they were told to get out of the mine and they don't know why. Pretty cold uh, water, too. Yeah, very cold water in January. Icebergs, we have, we have oral histories in here of, of men talking about icebergs as big as desks floating through the mine and pinning them up against the wall and, and, and bumping into them. Uh, there are, are drama, dramatic stories in here of, of miners uh, deciding that if they can't get out, they're not going to drown. There was one miner who had dynamite, and he and his, uh, his half-brother decided that if they would not get out of the mine, they would uh, simply use the dynamite to kill themselves and, and, and not drown, because drowning, in their view, as they say in the book, is a horrible death, and they would not drown. Was that something that was common among miners? To, 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 to carry dynamite? Yeah. No, they, had, they found a box of dynamite as they were trying to get out of the mine. 
and um, they just carried the one of them carried <coughs> this box. I mean, it must have been difficult at some point because they were in the water up to their waist, up to their neck. But he managed to keep this dynamite box with him for all, for seven hours. Uh, always, I guess, fearful that he may have to use it, being pinned in a certain chamber with the water rising. Furthermore, with rats probably in there with you, because the mines are full of rats, and the rats are always going to go to the to the higher higher ground. And so um, uh, it was. Uh, a device that they had hoped they wouldn't have to use, and luckily they didn't have to use it. How many people did you talk to who were actually on location or in the mine that day? Uh, we found um, several people who got out that day and several who worked um, in and around the mine and helped with the rescue. Uh, I believe of, of the exact uh, escapees, the, the, the folks who got out, we did about 12. And in and around the mine, former, former, former employees and um, uh, and a foreman and whatnot, about another 15. Then we did family members. We did wives and, and uh, children and uncles and brothers to get a broader picture and other mining men too to find out, you know, what's this, what about this Knox Coal Company? I mean, how could they do this? How could they go off course, that is, mine illegally under the river? What would prompt them to do this? What kind of an operation was this? So a total of about 60 interviews, oral history interviews, just on the Knox mine disaster and its relationship. In the book, we cite about 100 people who gave us, gave us some kind of information about mining or the family business, uh, um, general information uh, that helped us write the book, but on the Knox itself, about, about 60. Which of the interviews are most vivid in your mind? Do you have a favorite? I, I think Joe Stella's, as Ken said, Joe Stella was definitely one of the heroes of the day, a mine inspector for the Pennsylvania Coal Company, which leased the mine to the Knox Coal Company. And as the one of the surveyors for the leaseor, Joe had to go down there on a regular basis and make sure this company wasn't mining illegally. Well, he discovered the illegal mine, discovered it months before this break-in occurred, told his superiors in this very large company owned by the Erie Railroad, this was one of the big five companies, the Pennsylvania Coal Company, big five anthracite companies. And no action was taken. And when the court cases came up, uh, Joe was not indicted. His superiors were. Because Joe told them, as he was supposed to, that there's some illegal mining going on down there, and I don't know why it's going on. His interview was very dramatic, not just about, about how he helped lead men out, as we've said, but about the aftermath and how he had to testify and argue his case and and convinced the uh, authorities that he was he was quite innocent. Ken Walensky, you have a favorite interview? Well, there, there are several. I think some of the most moving interviews are, are the interviews of uh, children who's, uh, who are now adults, of course, uh, whose, whose fathers, for example, were killed that day. There were 12 who never got out, 12 who died. Uh, there are some very, very moving interviews of, of those individuals who uh, still, 40 years later, this is an event that has remained with them. It's an event that has scarred them in many ways and has scarred the local community. Uh, people are still very aggrieved about the Knox mine disaster. Um, one individual in particular, her, her name is Audrey Baloga, who lost her father and she lived and still lives right close to where this accident happened. Uh, and she told very dramatic stories of how every night <clears throat> when her father would come home from work, she would help him take his boots off and, and get him a bottle of beer and help to get his dinner ready. Uh, she was very close to her father. And on January 22nd, 1959, he didn't come home. Uh, and, and from that point forward, she has been very much affected by, uh, by the loss of her father and how he died.
uh, because these men drowned and their bodies were never recovered. Bob Walensky, you posed the question, how could this happen? How did it happen? Well, there are two answers to that question, Brian. There's what we call in the book the short answer to that question, the easy answer, and that is we had greedy individuals who took chances, who saw nice coal, beautiful coal. They were mining in what was called the Pittston vein, 12, 14, 15 feet high vein of pure coal, a rock above it and a rock beneath it, but no rock mixed in with it. There were no impurities. They couldn't resist this beautiful coal. So there was, it was greed. But the long answer is a little more uh, complicated than that. You had an industry in decline, been in decline since the 20s, other fuels becoming more popular, capital investment insufficient in research and development of this particular fuel, how to make it more available, marketing and so forth. You had big companies who had stockholders that had been used to very nice profits and suddenly those profits had begun to slide. So the big companies, the five main uh, 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 mineral rights owning companies, one of which was the Pennsylvania, as I've said, based in uh, New York originally, but Cleveland uh, after a while, began leasing out their coal mines, their, their mineral rights, to a lot of smaller, often scavenger companies. And they paid a royalty to the big guys on every ton they mined. And they also had to sell their coal in most cases to the big guys who then processed it in their breakers, in their collieries, and then shipped it over their affiliated railroads and then sold it through their, their agents. So the big guys decided they wanted to do all the coal business except for the mining. And why? Because they wouldn't take the chances and they wouldn't seek to corrupt the union and break the union as would these small leasee companies a few of which, I'm sorry to say, including the Knox Coal Company, were owned and controlled by organized crime. How does organized crime enter the picture? Well, one, one of the original founders of, of the Knox Coal Company uh, was and is alleged by the Pennsylvania Crime Commission uh, to be the, the leader of the, the leading organized crime family in that part of Pennsylvania. He died in the early 1950s and passed his shares on to his wife. What's his name? Uh, the name was John Chandra. Uh, that's one angle. So, so, so the company arguably was founded by someone who had very clear connections to organized crime. Bob mentioned the union, meaning the United Mine Workers of America. The local for the Knox Coal Company of the United Mine Workers of America also was corrupted by organized crime. One of the officers in that, uh, in that local uh, has also been alleged by the Pennsylvania Crime Commission to be a, a leading member in, in the, the Chandra, uh, later Buffalino, organized crime family. Who was that? He, uh, his name was Dominic Alimo. And, and Dominic Alimo was, uh, was a soldier in this family, and he was also a union official. So organized crime complicates the picture because you, you see there's a very clear relationship developing here between ownership of the company and, and management of the union. Uh, there, there are some very clear criminal connections here. There were four major investigations of the Knox mine disaster. There were state investigations of how it happened, why it happened, who was involved. These investigations would reveal uh, some, of the, some of the individuals with uh, questionable reputations who were involved in both the Knox Coal Company and the United Mine Workers of America. 
But the most significant investigation was a federal grand jury, which was housed in Scranton, actually prior to the Knox Mine disaster, which was investigating the influence of organized crime in two major Pennsylvania industries, anthracite coal mining and the garment industry, the, the apparel or clothing making industry uh, in, in, in northeastern Pennsylvania. And that investigation would lead to indictments of Knox Coal Company officials, UMWA, United Mine Workers of America officials, Pennsylvania Coal Company officials. And what that investigation revealed, as we argue in the book, we, we coined this term, a culture of corruption. That, that there was a culture of corruption that existed between these various entities uh, to, to mine coal, to violate rules, to violate laws in mining that coal. Uh, and to essentially produce profits. I want to read something uh, where you talked about the Pennsylvania legislature established the joint committee to investigate the Knox mine disaster. The committee uncovered a trail of greed, risk-taking, and negligence. It sat in anger as owners Doherty and Fabrizio, as well as un union official August Lippi, invoked the Fifth Amendment even though they were not on trial. The owners' defiance so angered lawmakers that Fabrizio and Doherty, Doherty or Doherty? Doherty. Yeah. Doherty were uh, ordered to testify in Harrisburg before the entire Senate, the first time in 202 years that the Pennsylvania legislative body had taken that action. So, so uh, who were Doherty and Fabrizio? Um, there, were, there were four owners of the Knox Coal Company. Three were on record. As Ken mentioned, Mrs. Chandra had inherited her husband's share. Louis Fabrizio was another owner. Uh, Bud Doherty was another owner. Um, he, he was also the, super, the superintendent, um, I mentioned Groves, had been uh, when the disaster occurred, but for the previous uh, 15 years it would be, had been Mr. Doherty. And the fourth owner was a silent owner, a secret owner, revealed only when the investigations began. His name was August J. Lippy. He was also the president of the District 1 UMWA. Now, it's clearly illegal against Taft-Hartley law for the president or any officer in a union to be a stockholder in, in that company. There's a picture of Lippi, uh, August Lippi, testifying and uh, taking the Fifth Amendment. Mm -hmm. this, this is at the hearings of the Joint Legislative Committee of the... Which was not a criminal proceeding, uh, but he's, he's taking the Fifth Amendment nevertheless. Now, he appears again before this committee and does testify. This is his, the first go. He wouldn't testify in, in the first round in March uh, of 1959, but in April he did agree to testify. So um, the four owners, and uh, they were all indicted, and they were all found guilty of various charges, but I must say, and you might want to get to this eventually, I don't want to get ahead of it, but they were sent to jail, uh, they were convicted of three, uh, all four were, of income tax evasion, but not of charges tied to the disaster itself. I want to read you this one thing about uh, August Lippi. You say, in March 1965, following one guilty verdict, but prior to his sentencing, Lippi was renominated for yet another term as president at the District 1 convention in Scranton. Indeed, the 125 convention delegates voted to raise his salary from $17,000 to $20,000. This was after they knew he was a co-owner of the mine and, and union official? It's, it, it's very interesting, yeah. August Lippi, uh, despite his clear ties as being a secret, secret illegal owner of the Knox Coal Company, despite his ties to the Knox mine disaster, 
uh, despite the fact that he went to jail uh, for income tax evasion because he didn't pay income taxes on his royalties from the Knox Colt Company, still had the support of the rank and file. And you might want to ask why. That's, that seems very, very interesting. Well, we have to, again, put this story in, in, in a larger perspective and understand what is happening with the United Mine Workers of America at about the same time. There have been arguments made that, that the United Mine Workers of America uh, during this era was a very corrupt union. It was a union where, the, where there was authoritarian control. Uh, no one dare cross John L. Lewis uh, or his successors. He was the head nationally? Uh, prior to Knox. Actually, prior to Knox, he was. But even more importantly, after John L. Lewis came an individual by the name of Tony Boyle, W.A. Tony Boyle. Uh, Tony Boyle, as history has written, was in himself a very corrupt individual. Tony Boyle ordered the murder of his opponent, Joseph Yablonsky, in southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, Yablonsky was shot to death along with his, with his wife and his daughter on New Year's Eve of 1969 because Yablonsky challenged Boyle for the presidency of the UMWA. Boyle was later indicted and convicted on three counts of first-degree murder for ordering the contract murder of Yablonsky. Uh, and Boyle was sent to the State Correctional Institute at Dallas where he died in 1983. So the bigger perspective here is that this is a union that has become corrupted. It's a union where there's authoritarian control. It's a union where the rank and file doesn't question what authority does. Uh, it's a union where there is very little democracy during this era. So that helps to explain why someone like an August Lippi, just like someone like a Tony Boyle, uh, could become corrupted and yet not challenged. You also mentioned in here that uh, at one point Jimmy Hoffa was a leader of the Teamsters and also part owner of the Blue Coal Company. Well, one mistake is to think that the Knox disaster ended all deep mining in northeastern Pennsylvania. A lot of uh, newspaper articles, for example, have reported that over the years. It didn't because um, the water, 10 billion gallons went into the mine, as Ken said, but 10 billion gallons were pumped out by the state. Um, what happened was that um, the companies that were hit, and several of them were affected by this, did not want to invest in rehabilitating their mines, even though the water level had been brought way down again. Again, it was a, it was a, it was a precarious business. Capital was going to oil and to gas rather than to anthracite coal. So the big companies realized that they couldn't reinvest and rebuild these mines because their stockholders would just, would just not take, be patient enough to wait for the capital to come around. So the mines in the central region around Pittston, the central part of the northern field, the scranton wilkes field, there are, there are really four anthracite fields, and the northernmost is between Scranton and wilkes the so-called Wyoming or the northern field. In the central part of that where Pittston is, mining did cease, but to the south, near Nanticoke and south of Wilkes-Barre, mining continued. And the Glen Alden Company, Anthracite's largest producer at one time, was sold to the Blue Coal Company. Uh, sold out and became the Blue Coal Company. One of the larger investors in the Blue Coal Company, again a secret partner, was Teamster President Jimmy Hoffa. And Blue Coal Company is really the, the last bit of of, uh, of mining, uh, eventually the water levels continued to rise because other companies were not pumping. They had abandoned their mines. And so Glen Alden and then Blue Coal Company had all these pumping costs because there's ordinary water dripping into the mines from just the surface. It's, it's called ordinary make water, ordinary mine drainage. And you must pump a mine 
constantly. For every one ton of coal, you could pump 40 a million gallons of water. It's a tremendous amount of water down uh, in a mine. And uh, Glen Alden sold the blue coal because it couldn't cover the pumping cost. The state was not going to cover the pumping cost. And so uh, a blue coal then looks for other investors to help keep it going, and one of them happens to be Jimmy Hoffa, who was in jail uh, around this time, too. Oh, at the time he was in jail. Well, he, he and August Lippi both served time together at, uh, at Lewisburg Penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Can you explain something about the pumping? How, how could one company not pumping cause the water to rise in other mines? Well, um, as I say, there's constant water flowing into a mine. And the mines are often interconnected. They were not supposed to be interconnected. They were supposed to be 100-foot solid barriers of coal between the workings. They're called barrier pillars. But the coal companies, again, in this pillaging era, part of the culture of corruption, Ken talked about, they robbed the barrier. They took coal out of the barrier. They broke through to the next working. So water in one mine would seep to another mine. And now the barrier pillars were designed to stay in the mine, to be left in the mine, precisely to keep floods from spreading or fires from spreading. There's a political cartoon in your, uh, in your book that shows pillar robbing. And uh, where would this have appeared? That was in the Sunday Independent, a newspaper in Wilkes-Barre which is no longer in existence. So it was an issue that was known enough to the public that it could appear in the local newspaper? All the miners know about it. In fact, we have oral history testimony. It's in, in the book of a miner telling us how you did it. You did it in 50-foot gulps because on the other side of the barrier pillar could be, you know, a, a billion gallons of water and you didn't want to break through to, the, to that next mine and all the water would rush through and, and wash you away. You did it in 10-foot gulps, and uh, when you got, you, you would tap it. You would tap it through with a, with a, um, with a bar, and pull that bar out. And if no water came through, you'd take that. You'd take that next bunch. But if you pulled it out and water came through, it'd be a small hole, maybe two stop. inches in diameter. You would stop right there and say, "There's water on the other side. Let's get out of here." So were they essentially taking out the pillars that were holding the ceiling up? This, these pillars, they were taking out two kinds of pillars. There's the barrier pillar, which separates major workings. That's a 100-foot solid block of coal. There are also um, roof support pillars, which are much smaller. As you go into a mine, you sort of honeycomb it. You don't take all the coal. You take only about 40% of the coal, and you leave the rest in as, as, uh, as support pillars. Uh, later on, they robbed these pillars, uh, and that was judged legal by the state. You could take out the pillars of roof support, but it was never legal to take out the, the barrier pillars, the ones separating the mines. And so um, this was second and third mining. The first mining is, is in the virgin coal. A second mining, you take some of the pillars. And a third mining, you clear cut those roof support pillars. Very dangerous mining. And again, the big guys didn't want to do this, the five big companies. They leased the property so the small guys could do this very kind of, very dangerous sort of mining. Can I ask you each a little bit about yourselves? Uh, Ken Walensky, we said you're with the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission. What do you do there? I, I'm a historian uh, with the, the Historical and Museum Commission, uh, involved in historical research, uh, writing, publishing, public history programs, uh, mainly on, on Pennsylvania history topics. It's funded by the state? Yes, it's a state government agency. That's right. What are you and, working on right now? 
I actually, I'll, I'll mention that uh, PHMC published the, the, the book on, on the Knox Mine Disaster. Uh, we are also working on another book, I say we, because Bob will also be a co-author for this book, on the, the garment industry and the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, uh, mainly in northeastern Pennsylvania, but also touching on, on other areas of Pennsylvania as well. Uh, there's a, a correlation here because as anthracite coal mining declined, uh, families needed, needed income nevertheless, and in many cases women, the, the wives or daughters of unemployed or underemployed coal miners, went to work in clothing factories, in garment factories which were sprouting in that part of the state. Uh, running away from New York, running away from union organizers and, and in some cases labor laws in New York. Uh, so we're, we're working on a book on, on that industry as well. At the risk of stating the obvious, you are brothers? Yes. yes. Who is Nicole Walensky? She's my daughter and Ken's niece. She's our third author, an undergraduate student at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Studying psychology? Psychology major. How'd she get involved in this? Uh, we needed um, a, a, a good editor, and she's a very good editor, and um, very good grammar and English skills, and she did some of the research. We needed someone to help us do some of the research because time was getting short on the deadline and so forth, so we brought Nicole in as the, as the third author. We did, a, we did a, a significant commemoration of the Knox Mine disaster in January, just this past January. You'll see on the back of the book a state historical marker. We dedicated a historical marker to the Knox Mine disaster in Port Griffith, near where it happened. Uh, the, the book came out on the disaster at the same time. Uh, there is a, an exhibit at the Anthracite Heritage Museum in Scranton, which is a historical and museum commission facility that is dedicated to the, uh, to the Knox Mine disaster. Um, it, it's important to understand, Brian, people, people may think that this is, was just a regional disaster, it's something that happened locally, it's, it's a local thing, therefore it, maybe it's not that significant or, or maybe it's not that important. It's important in, in the history of Pennsylvania and it's very important in Pennsylvania's industrial history because what the Knox Mine disaster helped to do was to bring about an end to a major Pennsylvania industry, anthracite coal mining, which, which along with steel were the, the state's two predominant industries for a long, long time. Uh, so it's more than, than simply a local story. Uh, it, it's a, state, a story of statewide significance, which is why it received a state historical marker. Uh, it, it's also uh, a story of human tragedy. It's a story of hardship. Anthracite coal mining, like any coal mining or any mining, is a very hard life. Uh, many people lost their lives mining coal over a hundred year period from the mid-1850s to the mid-1950s uh, or so. 35,000 men died in Pennsylvania's anthracite coal mines, meaning they were killed by rock falls or, or whatever. That doesn't include the number that were injured. It doesn't include the number who died of black lung. It doesn't include the number who died of other causes related to anthracite coal mining. That's 35,000 who were killed in the mines. So it was an industry that did a lot of good. It lifted thousands of European immigrants out of poverty by giving them their first job in America. Uh, it, it helped to fuel a nation by providing coal, but it's also an industry where there was a significant social cost. 35,000 deaths were one of those social costs. Catastrophes like the Knox Mine disaster and the level of corruption that it revealed in the industry and in, in its major union is another one of those social costs. So this is a story that goes much beyond something that just happened locally. When did the anthracite industry start to decline? Well, there was a major strike 
Brian, in 1925-26, the 20s were fraught with strikes. There was a strike in 22 as well. It had been a very tumultuous industry, a lot of labor relations problems, and anthracite became known in the 20s as a very unreliable fuel. And, and mayors from Boston and from New York and governors from Massachusetts and other states were telling their, their citizens to switch from this very unreliable fuel. Unreliable because of strikes? Because of strikes. You could never know whether the supply was going to be there this winter. Uh, constant, constant labor unrest. It's, I think it's, uh, it's the, it, among our most um, tumultuous industrial sectors with regard to labor relations. So it started, the decline started after the 25-26 strike, and then the Great Depression just made things worse. Things picked up a little bit for anthracite during World War II because of the increased war demand. But after the war, this little boomlet ended and the slide continued. But in the meantime, in the meantime, the big companies still held mineral rights to a lot of coal. There's still maybe five billion tons of coal up there in the ground. Who owns it now? Um, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, most of the old companies are out of, out of business. And since they went bankrupt uh, or, or just shut down, um, my guess is that, that the state probably owns a lot of that or certain entrepreneurs own a lot of that land. But the mineral rights, there's surface rights and there's mineral rights, two different kinds of rights. And I th- my guess is that a lot of the folks who own the land also own these fairly useless mineral rights. The state probably owns some of it. But I'd, I'd just be guessing to say what, who owns more of it, state or entrepreneurs at this point. Ask a quick question about mineral rights. If you own the mineral rights and you're doing deep mining, it doesn't affect the surface. But if you want to do strip mining, can you just take away what's on the surface to get to the, uh, to the coal? Well, strip mining in Pennsylvania is fairly, fairly heavily regulated. Um, the, the, the State Department of Environmental Protection regulates uh, what happens with, with strip mines in, in Pennsylvania. I, I don't know the intricacies of all the, the regulations, but you can't simply just go in and, and, and strip mine without having state permits and state approval to do that. There is, in northeastern Pennsylvania, deep mining is virtually nil. There is virtually no deep mining anymore. Uh, the majority of, of the very little coal that is mined is strip mined by big, what are called dragline shovels. They're these essentially huge cranes which strip the earth uh, and, and, and pull the coal out by, by that method. Who are the customers for it? Anthracite still has, uh, there are a, a handful of companies who cater to a small market, uh, home heating. Yeah, you know, people have really? coal stoves, sure, coal stoves in their home, for example. So there, there is a small market in, in that regard. Um, I, I want to touch on, on another issue related to what Bob said about the decline of anthracite, because in the last chapter of the book, we, we wanted to end this story on, on a positive note. The Knox mine disaster can be seen as a very negative story, and actually it is a very negative story, but there, there's a positive side to the story, and, and, and that's this, that what happened with the decline of anthracite and what happened because of events like the Knox mine disaster was that there was a real community effort and a statewide effort to help communities like this recover and to diversify their economies, um, to bring in new businesses and new industry uh, so that they wouldn't suffer from double-digit unemployment rates, which were very common in places like Scranton and Wilkes-Barre. In the, in the 40s and the 50s and in the 60s. There were efforts to create the Pennsylvania Industrial Development Authority, which is a state-run uh, program that still exists, uh, created by the legislature and at that time Governor George Leader in the mid-1950s, uh, which provided state funds to bring in new business and industry. There were communities who, who pulled together funds, who had workers contributing pennies from their paychecks in places like Scranton to create local economic development funds to lure new business. 
The result was that by the 70s and, and, and the 1980s, communities like this that had been dependent upon coal mining for over a century now had more diverse economies uh, and had gone from 14 and 15 percent unemployment rates uh, to now 7 and 8 and 9 percent unemployment rates, which are still significant, you know, in, in the 80s, certainly. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it, it did help to lead to some economic diversification, which is what we talk about in the last chapter of the book. How do the jobs pay that are there now as opposed to what uh, coal mining paid? Well, most of the jobs that are in that part of the state now, which uh, is true for jobs generally, of course, as you know, have gone to the service sector. Uh, we, we've gone from, a, from an industrial society to a service sector society, and, and now we're, we're transforming into, into the technology age and, and into the information society. The jobs in the service sector generally don't pay as well, nor do they provide the benefits that, are, that were typically provided by jobs, say, in manufacturing uh, or in mining. Uh, so comparatively speaking, uh, they, in many cases, are, are, are not uh, family-sustaining or, or life-sustaining types of jobs. Uh, but, but, you know, the hope is that with information technology and moving into the information age that uh, high-tech jobs are, are now the, the trend of the present <clears throat> and the future. They're a little safer than coal mining, too. A little safer, yeah, much yeah. safer than coal mining. Uh, now, we, when we less left the mine, the water was still pouring in. Right. How did they stop it from pouring in? That's a, another important part of the story. Um, it was a major engineering feat to stop the, the whirlpool, to stopple the whirlpool in the middle of the river. They began by dumping all kind of fill into it, rock, uh, column, C-U-L-M, which is coal waste, called column. Uh, soil, whatever they could find, and it didn't do a darn thing. How big was the hole? Well, um, that's, a, that's a question that I've asked myself many times. I've got many different answers as, as to how big the coal, how, how big, how wide the thing was. Pretty big. Pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to give, you, uh, to, get, to give you some idea, after the, the rock and the, so the soil did not work, they started dumping in huge mine cars called gondolas, actually two types of mine calls, uh, cars, the gondolas and, and the coal hoppers. And the gondolas were 50-ton giant, uh, giant uh, uh, boxes of, of steel and iron, and they put in somewhere between 50 and 60. And they just rolled them down just, the hill and dumped them into the river. As one person said, just like a cigarette butt going down a, a commode, you know, just <laughs> whisked it right down. Um, so I think as some of these went down, furthermore, Brian, they reamed the hole out and made it bigger. So uh, several hundred, uh, a few hundred feet across. It's hard to say. No one ever actually measured it because they, they filled it up as fast as they, after over, over three days and 60 gondola cars and hopper cars plus 500 or so smaller mine cars, the ones the men filled to take out of the, bring out of the mine. 500. 500. 500. Lifted mainly in by crane. Now, they dumped these gondolas, I should mention, uh, they, uh, into the hole by cutting the, by cutting the tracks, the Lehigh Valley Railroad tracks, and pushing them off the end with a yard locomotive. So they'd string up about 10 of them, and the train would start coming down the tracks, and the conductor would hit the brakes and release the last car, and it would fly off the end of the tracks, which they had cut out over the hole, and it would be whisked right down to the bottom. But the smaller cars went in by crane, Five to six hundred of those. You get different reports from different stories. Must have been a sight to see. Huh? A yeah. lot of debris, tons more of rock and column. After three days, it finally stopped drinking. 
So while you have this, this tremendous drama of people trying to get out of the mine, below the surface, on the surface, you have lots of activity with engineers and state officials, uh, UMWA people, uh, coal company officials trying to figure out how to gap this huge whirlpool in the bed of the river. So they finally plugged it. Then did they, they pump out the mine? Mm -hmm. They pumped out, they put in 40 pumps. Uh, the state and federal government paid for this at certain important locations around the mine, dug a whole bunch of ditches because the water had to go back into the river below. And floods, basements were flooded. There were all kinds of protests. They put some of the water in, into the local sewer systems, and the sewers backed up in the people's homes and basements. Um, a lot of erosion caused by it. But they eventually brought the water level back down. Then they re-entered the mine. A group went in and did a few things. They, one looked for bodies. They probed with long sticks that had nails on the end looking for bodies because it was all mud and muck down there. They also did some uh, preliminary work to figure out how they could, where they would um, plug the hole with concrete, which was kind of a third phase after it had been pumped. Um, so uh, crews went down and scattered around, found no bodies, and, and realized that the mine was pluggable, was permanently sealable with concrete. And that took place as a third phase in the spring where they dammed up the entire river, it's a so-called coffer dam, pumped the water out of that dam, diverted the river along the right bank, then crews went underneath and put bulkheads in various mine tunnels, and then on the, in the bed of the river they, bore, uh, they did several boreholes through which was forced thousands of yards of concrete. So that hole is now sealed. Um, uh, the water still seeping in through crevices, but not through that hole. Did they ever mine it again? No. Yeah. That portion, that Pittston portion, was totally lost at that time. But as I say, mining continued down below Nanticoke and Wilkes-Barre and above in Scranton and the Lackawanna region because that region was a separate bowl of anthracite. And the water backing up and filling up in the Pittston area to the, and to the south would not go up in the Scranton because it was a different bowl of anthracite, different basin, as the, as the geologists would say. And if they had not sealed it, it might have just kept on spreading through it would have the kept, The water would have kept on seeping in, and it would have, have probably flooded the other mines more quickly. Um, they, actually, the government thought, though, that the companies would rehabilitate the mines. They didn't realize that, the, that capital would not be that patient. You say in here in the book, because of the Knox break-in, an estimated 10.37 billion gallons of water cascaded into the Wyoming Basin's mines. The immediately inundated area extended three and one-half miles by one-half mile. Mm -hmm. In and around Pittston. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, were there, at the time, people were starting to switch over to oil from coal. Was oil cheaper? Or what was the advantage of oil over coal? It, it, it will, actually, the switch had begun even earlier. Uh, we had oil, fuel oil, natural gas. Um, a little bit later, we have, of course, nuclear energy. Um, but in many cases, they were less expensive and more dependable and reliable fuel sources. Uh, you know, there weren't the strikes or, or the problems that there were in, in, in Pennsylvania's anthracite industry. As anyone who's had an anthracite furnace knows, uh, coal and oil had no ashes to haul out and had, they were a lot more maintenance-free. Right. Do you think there's any prospect for the coal that's in the ground now? 
There is talk about this often. I mean, it comes up every so often, some robotic technology to get down there to get some of this coal out or to drain the mines and use more traditional methods. Um, I don't see it in the foreseeable future. Um, however, with some 5 billion tons down there, one never knows what might happen in 50 or 100 years. I think with global warming, however, Brian, and the fact that um, fossil fuel burning is a serious cause of our problems, we're, we're in the next century going to have to move away from all fossil fuels or else we're going to have some very serious problems with, with, in, with environmental problems. And, and, and of course, the, the nation's reliance upon nuclear energy has also been, been called into question, certainly because of events that happened right near here at Three Mile Island in 1979. Uh, up to that point, we had relied heavily as a country on, on nuclear energy to help to uh, fuel a nation, much like anthracite coal did 100 years earlier. Uh, but now our, our, our nuclear policy uh, or policies have been called into question because of accidents. Chernobyl, uh, for example. Um, and and there, there's an analogy here, too, if I can draw it. Uh, to put the Knox mine disaster in, in, in its perspective, we would argue that the Knox mine disaster was to that part of Pennsylvania in 1959 what Three Mile Island was to this part of Pennsylvania in 1979. It had that type of significance to the community and, and, and in the longer term to the state. Was there much underground mining going on in the western part of the state at the time? And is there now? There, is, there, there was some, and, and there, there still is some. Again, the majority of bituminous coal that is mined is, is still, well, in, in, in the current context, is strip mined, much, much like anthracite coal. Uh, but bituminous coal certainly was deep mined, uh, like anthracite. You know, we started talking about each of you a couple of minutes ago, and we didn't get, we got no. sidetracked. Yeah. But uh, uh, Ken Malensky, uh, we talked about the fact that you grew up in the area of the anthracite region? Well, we, we both did. Um, Bob was born a few years before me, uh, but we, we both grew, in, grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania. Our, our father worked for a, a coal company in that part of the state, as did many of our relatives. Which one? Uh, he, he worked for what was called the Harry E. Coal Company, which was a small independent coal company. Um, what did he do? Uh, he worked in, in one, of the, one of the collieries, in, in one of the breakers, helping to process the coal for market. Again, this was when the industry was mainly in decline. Uh, he, he worked there for about 20 years. The underground? Uh, not to any great extent, no. But, you know, m much like growing up, say, in a steel town where virtually everyone you knew worked in the steel mill, well, the, the, the same was true in northeastern Pennsylvania. M most, of people, most of the people that you knew or grew up with had parents and relatives that worked either in the coal mines or in, in the garment or textile factories. And what was the town you grew up in? Uh, our parents were, were born in, in, in a small town called Swoyersville, which is in Luzerne County. Uh, Bob and I both grew up in, in, in sort of the suburbs uh, in, in, in the Back Mountain area. Where'd you a go to bit school? north of Wilkes-Barre. Uh, we went to uh, high school at, at Dallas High School, where we have another brother right now who's a guidance counselor, <clears throat> and uh, went to uh, uh, College Ms. Recordia and, and the University of Delaware and then Penn State University. Studying what? Uh, mainly history and public policy. What did you want to be when you went off to college? What did I want to be when I went off to college? That's a good question. Uh, well, always had an interest in history. Uh, and, and, and in the relationships, frankly, between history and public policy and how history has influenced public policy. Um, Bob Walensky, were you the first member of your family to go to college? Uh, I was the first Walensky to go to college. I believe that's correct. Right. On my mother's side, I think there was one more ahead of us. My mother's maiden name was Syracuse, and both sides, again, were minors, both my mother's side and my father's side. 
But yeah, I was the first on the Bolinskis. How did that happen? Uh, well, we moved out to the suburbs, as Ken said, and when I was very young, and uh, the suburban schools were very good schools, much more middle class, upper middle class environment, the so-called back mountain area of Dallas, Trucksville, and so forth. And I think uh, this, I've had a very good education, and it, the expectation was always there that because you have this, ex this education, you will continue with your advanced studies, and, and I did, and so did the rest of us. Where did you go to college? Went to Villanova, undergraduate, and Penn State for master's and doctorate. In? Sociology, all three. And what are you working on right now? Well, we do have the book coming out in the garment industry, as Ken mentioned, on Min and Bill Matheson, whose historical marker we're going up to dedicate tomorrow, as a matter of fact, in Wilkes-Barre. And I hope to do some other kind of work with this oral history project. I'd like to produce a one or two volume set of excerpts uh, from these remarkable stories that we've collected over the past uh, 15 years. You teach? I'm a professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin in Stevens Point. What courses? Teach community sociology, urban sociology, environmental sociology, social problems. Have you heard much from people in the uh, region about this book once it uh, was published? Oh, yes. Yes, the, 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 there was a great deal of interest in, in this book, not just in the region, but in other areas of the state as well, because it, it of course, is, is attached to Pennsylvania's mining lore and, and, and mining history. Uh, the book has, uh, I think, even, even to our surprise, done, done very, very well, uh, and it, it's been, been quite popular. I, I would encourage folks, if they're interested, to go to the Anthracite Heritage Museum in Scranton to see the fantastic exhibit that the curators there did on the, uh, on the Knox Mine disaster. This is the cover of the book, The Knox Mine Disaster, January 22nd, 1959. Ken Walensky, Bob Walensky, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. Our pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.